Okay, uh, everybody's recording. We're going to count down from five to zero, and then we're all going to clap at the same time. Then I'm going to do the monologue. We'll get started. I'm just wondering, though, are the claps really funny? Like when you hear it, are they all off? So it's funny. They are so off in Zoom. It seems ridiculous because, I mean, when I look at this, I'm like, oh, my God, you guys are the worst. We have no rhythm. It's, like, very clear. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Renal physiology. A complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to Accounting of Our Two-Year Mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm. The Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 7, the first chapter in Part 2, Regulation of Water and Electrolyte Balance. This chapter is called The Total Body Water and Plasma Sodium Concentration. It is a super interesting chapter and a short chapter, thank God, after the marathon chapter six so i am looking forward to this we have the full crew tonight josh hi josh waitsman nephrology fellow at beth israel deaconess medical center here in boston letty i'm leticia Rolon, a nephrologist at ucsf roger roger rodby nephrologist chicago rush presbyterian st luke's medical center melanie melanie honig nephrologist at beth israel deaconess medical center anna i'm anna gaddy a nephrology fellow at indiana university not for much longer. Yeah. <laughs> JC. Juan Carlos Velez, nephrologist at Auckland Health in New Orleans. And Amy. I'm Amy Yao. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Total body water and plasma sodium concentration. It feels like the very first day of a nephrology lecture, right? The body water is distributed across three major compartments, the intracellular space, and then the interstitium, which constitutes the extracellular environment of the cells and the vascular space, which is kind of a weird way to, to write it, but it's intracellular versus extracellular. And then the extracellular is further divided into an interstitium and a plasma space. Let me ask the team, what, what do you guys use for your percent of total body water for each of those compartments? So for instance, I mean, you know, two thirds, one third, three fourths, yeah. one fourth, et cetera. Yeah. Just the book here. They talk about 60%, 40%. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it makes small differences in our calculations. I don't think it's clinically that relevant. But uh, what do you guys use? Yeah, I, I had the same question, Roger. Typically, I will do a third of a third for simplicity. But the literature, most of the time, talks about a fourth or even a fifth of the extracellular fluid to assign to the intravascular. My understanding is that it's about 20% of the extracellular is intravascular, 
I have used a third just because it was easy for me to go from the third to the third. I use two thirds, one third for intracellular versus extracellular. And then I use three quarters in the interstitium and one quarter in the plasma compartment. And I think that's probably what's most common. I've always used two thirds, one third, two thirds, one third, because it's just easier to teach and make everyone remember. And the difference between a, a ninth and a twelfth is clinically insignificant. So, it, you know, of the total fluid in the intervascular space. But I think I probably do overestimate it because, I mean, JC is saying it could even be a fifth of the extra cellular space. And it probably depends on your volume status too, but I mean, your edema and everything else, but I mean, for a normal person. It's so funny that you asked that because this came up in class today because I use two thirds, one third, and then one quarter, three quarters. And I guess in the class before me, they use one third and one third. And so who's right? We are. I, just, I like two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds, one-third, because it's just easier for, for students to remember and probably clinically insignificant, the difference. I think it's kind of nice that like this is the place where every nephrology unit starts is like not this is our organ. We care about this organ above all others. It's like you as a human are a bag of salt and water. <laughs> this is the way your salt and water is divided up. And our, our organ is the one that figures out where that salt and water is going to stay. But we're going to go back to the super basic building blocks of how this works and build from there. And then you're going to see how cool this thing is. So this is like, it feels like this is where the book should start, but we've been through like what feels like a year of this already to get to this point. I've tried to really bring this point home more so with the residents than with, with medical students is that the reason why we talk about sodium and, you know, and all this, like this body water regulation and fluid osmolality, it has to do not just with hemodynamics and maintaining uh, effective circulating volume as well, so because of mentation and normal brain function. So any of these, you know, abnormalities with any of these compartments can then lead to altermental status. So a lot of clinical correlations. You know, as Josh said, we're a bag of salt water, and this is the organ that regulates not only how much salt water is, but how yes. salty it is, <laughs> right? It's like it's both the volume and the salinity is regulated right here. Okay, so uh, we've gotten through the first sentence. This is going to be a long time. <laughs> Roger wanted to do two chapters tonight. <laughs> Yes, let the record reflect that Roger texted the group today and was like, you know, this is a short chapter. We got two and a half words in. It was within an hour that I retracted, by the way. <laughs> and, the, and then there's this just this critical line. It says, the regulation of intracellular volume is achieved in part by regulation of plasma osmolality. He lays a sentence out, which you think about it, that's totally unintuitive. How would adjusting the osmolality affect the volume of the intracellular compartment? And he, he kind of leaves that out there and doesn't, ex he gets to it eventually, but it's kind of left out there like a sore thumb for a bit. And then he has the, the classic, you know, switch that nephrologists are always frustrated in trying to teach people is that regulation of volume requires Regulating total body sodium and regulating of osmolality requires regulation of total body water. And it's that unintuitive switch that volume seems to be related to water because that's where we have volume, but it actually regulates osmolality and that controlling total body sodium regulates total body volume. I think that one of the things that so this is one of the things that always confuses, not confuses me, but I see it confusing learners because we drill into their heads. Water is sodium and volume is and sodium is volume. Dysnatremia is due to altered water metabolism. Right. And volume and volume dysregulation is due to altered sodium metabolism. Right. 
But I think that that's because we're so, the reason that we teach that makes sense, but then we are often teaching it in the context of giving IV fluids. But I like the way it's broken out because water is a cell thing and an osmolality thing and sodium is a volume blood pressure life thing. But the reason these are both kidney things is because the only accessible compartment is the intravascular compartment, right? It's not like you can fine-tune the amount of water coming out of cells into the environment or the amount of extravascular interstitial water that goes and put its somewhere else. You need some system to get rid of extra salt or retain extra salt or get rid of extra water or retain extra water. And that's why every kidney unit everywhere starts with this kind of a, like a, the, the big box and the one third, two thirds and the three quarters, one quarter box. It's because that little one twelfth or one ninth bottom right corner box is the one that lets you change the numbers in the other two really big boxes for the rest of the body. And if that little quarter box isn't adequate, you're dead. But you can see where it's confusing as a learner. If someone goes, you're giving D5, holds up a bag of dextrose and says there's no volume in this, and you're going, well, it has volume, I can see it. It does have volume, and that volume affects cell volume, but it doesn't affect perfusion. So that it's confu- I can see why that's confusing, because you're telling somebody that it's not affecting volume, and it's literally, I can see the volume <laughs> dripping in, but so I can we, see why. We overemphasize that, right? I mean, it's only a, th- I mean, that liter of normal saline, only 250 cc's remains in the plasma compartment. And if you give D5, well, 80 cc's, which is a third of normal saline. It's not nothing, right? It's it's as third as effective as normal saline. So that's, you know, there's something there. So we give this example of like when you drink water alone, like how quickly you have to go urinate and your urine is very dilute, right? Even though, okay, maybe transiently your volume will increase, but then you urinate it out almost immediately. Whereas if you're tra- taking in fluids with solutes, your body does a better job of holding on to it. And so that's why it's also water is not an, an effective resuscitative fluid. So that's always something we try to, like, anybody can relate to this, drink a whole bottle of water, immediately you're going to have to go pee and it's super dilute. So I think it's, that is kind of intuitive. Well, that, that also relates to ADH suppression, which is, you know, very, very sensitive. And, you know, I, one of the fun things I like to do with the residents is, you know, we go around the room and I say, okay, what percent of saline stays intravascular? And you get, you know, 100% to 10%. And then we talk about water. And it really gets back to what Anna was saying. I mean, part of understanding volume, one of the best ways to understand volume is is when I describe what IV fluids are and what they do and where they stay. Because I think most of the residents really don't have a good concept of that. Or you saline, oh, saline's volume, 100%. No, of saline, you're lucky if a third stays intravascular. It's not like a, it's not like a, a liter of blood. And water, you know, that's the, the, other, the, the other side of that is we talk about uh, diabetes insipidus with a pure water loss, how those patients can get sodiums up to, you know, 180 and yet their blood pressure is just fine because... It's really, it's a cellular, most of that's coming from this, the intracellular space, and you're not seeing any uh, any of the effect on the, inter- very little effect on the intravascular volume. I like to teach it by going through the uh, the, the uh, intravenous fluids, which Joel loves to do, as he has, he's done in exercises all the time. Yeah, no, but yeah, it's a, it's a great gimmick. But what I love about this chapter is, in, I mean, and honestly, we use that crutch all the time as we, as we think it's, because it's a great way to make it real for the residents and for the medical students because they're ordering these fluids all the time. But Burton Rose doesn't use that crutch. Burton Rose is like, we're going from first principles. We're going to start with the fact that these plasma, the membranes in the body can't retain water. And let's go from the implications of that. And, that, and that's what I think is what makes this book a textbook rather than the one-hour lecture that you might be able to get, where you spend 15 minutes of this part, uh, you know, when you're going to have to go through all the IV fluids. Yeah, it, it, I think that teaching it that way sounds really simple and is nice, and people leave 
leave that sit down session thinking they understand. And then when you start to look at patients and, and understand why what, what you're giving them is making something happen clinically, you're like trying to oversimplify it winds up just being more confusing in the end because we're not mixing Kool-Aid, you know? Okay. The first, the first heading is exchange of water between cellular and extracellular fluids. And he starts with saying that the water can move through all the cell membranes. And as a consequence of that, all the body fluids are in osmotic equilibrium. That if anything were to get any more concentrated, water would flow into that compartment and dilute it back to the same osmolality. So you have the same osmolality in the CSF, plasma, gallbladder secretions, intestines. No place is able to maintain an osmotic gradient except for what? What organ can maintain an osmotic gradient? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any idea. Have you heard, have you heard of the kidneys? <laughs> best, best organ ever. But I just wanted to say that, like, for me, when I when I think about these things and, like, water moving down osmotic gradients, doesn't it take you back a little bit to, like, chemistry in college, like, with all your pre-med courses? Like, okay, this is the reason why we had, these are part of your, like, pre-med, like, requisites. And I think it's important to, like, just to keep this in mind that, you know, we've kind of been learning these concepts, or we know them to some degree, but then as we go through, like, medical school, like, the preclinical curriculum and clinical curriculum, we kind of forget all these, these basic foundations of chemistry that we got in undergrad. But I, I like how this, like, I felt, especially with this chapter, like, it really brings us back there. So then Rose starts to go through the basic, let's call it the physics, right? The physical chemistry of how osmolality works. And it's, a, it's dependent on the Brownian motion of, uh, of particles and that the, this motion is slowed down when there are other solutes in the water. And so areas with lower solute contents have fluids, have particles moving at a faster rate. So they're more likely to leave that compartment and move into the compartment with the solute, which was kind of wild. I never had heard an explanation for why you get osmotic movement of water. Yeah, this is what uh, Leti was saying, that this takes you back to inorganic chemistry. The number of collisions corresponds to the grades of freedom, and that corresponds to the total volume. So if these particles are close to each other, they have less freedom, they collide to each other. So the molecules are going to go when they have a more space uh, or freedom to move at a higher speed and that's going to lead to translocation of water from a hypotonic uh, environment to a hypertonic environment. And then this would move indefinitely except for there's a hydrostatic or hydraulic pressure that's going to oppose it. As the, as, the, as fluid moves into there, it's going to, he talks about raising a column of water, but you can imagine stretching to a, a bag that has contains it and ultimately that's going to push back on that osmotic movement of water and that when those forces are in balance you now have a measure of your osmotic pressure and that he derives how that how that's done he's got a beautiful figure seven one which just kind of shows how this works yeah i think the idea of an osmotic pressure is really hard for folks to conceptualize and i think the idea of having this little pressure gauge on the top and eventually the peak of the pressure will top out or joel like you're saying like you have a bag that's stretching and will sometimes eventually stretch back or like a balloon stretching back inward. Um, that makes the idea of what an osmotic pressure means like more real to learners. And then he briefly talks about ineffective osmols. He talks about if you were to add urea in this situation, where the urea would diffuse across the membrane rather than causing water to move. And he introduces that concept of an ineffective osmol and then comes back and says the primary effective osmol in the extracellular compartment is sodium, or excuse me, sodium salts. 
And the primary effective osmol in the intracellular compartment are potassium salts. So, Joel, you skipped over a, kind of an important fact here, and that is that we all know it, but the osmotic pressure is proportional to the number of particles. It could be any size particle, it's the number of particles. And I, you know, I never really thought why that would be the case until I really understood that chapter a couple before, how it's all about the, the movement of these and what kind of, and what crosses, which you're so used to what happens in nephrology. You've got a hypertonic solution and a hypotonic solution. Water moves across. Why? Because it has to. The osmolalities have to have to equilibrate, right? But I never really thought about the exact mechanism why there. It is explained, as you guys won't go over it again, but, but I think that explains why it's, it's really the number of particles. Colligative properties are properties which are affected by the number of solute particles in a solution rather than the identity of that solute. The colligative properties are freezing point, boiling point, rate of diffusion or osmotic pressure, and vapor pressure. When solute is added to a solvent, its freezing point drops, its boiling point raises, its rate of diffusion increases, and its vapor pressure drops. For all those times I'm trying to vaporize my patients, that's very useful. Yeah, well, you know, the clinical uses are, are bizarre and unusual, but, uh, you know, it's important to know this stuff. Since you brought up this point about the number of particles, one thing that comes up often for students is where does albumin fit into this picture? Because they're taught about how albumin is so important in keeping fluid in the intravascular space, but it plays really no role in osmolality. If you do the math, you guys know I'm bad at math, but if, if one did the math, we could put that in the show notes. <laughs> it actually turns out to be not even one milliosm per liter is from albumin. So Melanie, despite her protest, is great at math, and of course she's right. The molecular weight of human serum albumin is 66.5 kilodaltons, and knowing that one dalton is the same as one gram per mole, this means that um, albumin's molecular weight is 66,500 grams per mole. So using a normal albumin level of 3.5 grams per deciliter, which is just the same as 35 grams per liter, or 0 0.0053 moles per liter. This is the same as 0.53 millimoles per liter or 0.53 milliosms per liter, which is the osmolarity of human albumin. As a reminder, a normal plasma osmolality is 280 milliosms per kilogram of water. No, so few particles. There's just so few particles. That's, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, I never realized that, Melody. That's interesting. It is an effective osmol, but it's a tiny concentration. And the major infective osmols here are going to be your sodium salts in the, in the extracellular compartment and potassium salts in the intracellular compartment. I also feel like we gave urea a sort of a short shrift. I was wondering if Roger was going to have anything to say about that. Because urea is such a cool molecule. I mean, it's so ingenious that... You know, sometimes students also get confused because they know that like, wait, the liver breaks down amino acids and makes ammonia. Why not just excrete it? We know the kidney excretes ammonia all the time. So what's the deal? And it's just because it's so very toxic that it gets packaged as urea and urea then very small molecule and polar, I guess, I guess like water. So it doesn't go through lipid membranes that easily. And it's for that reason, but it does eventually with your Brownian motion can equilibrate, but so it can eventually equilibrate and is kind of slow at that. So that's why in the kidney, it's so handy to have all those transporters for urea. 
Whereas everywhere else, yes, it can equilibrate and therefore is technically a non-effective osmol, but maybe it's really not effective because it's mostly only accounting for five milliosms or so in the normal state and can become more important if it's very abnormal. Yeah. But again, I think that's one of those situations where saying it's ineffective period is, and then we rush off to dialyze somebody because they're BUN 300. It's confusing, you know, to oversimplify it like that. Same thing with glucose. Well, and actually that's one of the places where it becomes quite effective and a really big problem when you take urea away quickly. So I, I wonder if it's not, that it's not really an effective osm or if it's just because in the normal situation, it's rather small concentration, which we'll get to. Well, urea, urea does move pretty easily or it wouldn't be able to, or dialysis wouldn't work. So what you were alluding to is dialysis equilibrium, where you lower the you know, the BUN with dialysis faster than urea moves out of a cell. You have osmotic disequilibrium and you've got a higher urea in the brain and water moves in the brain and you get cerebral edema. Even patients who have relatively not elevated uh, BUNs. After dialysis, if you look at their, you know, what their BUN is, let's say it's 20, and 10 minutes later, it's 25. So it went up by five and 20 minutes. So it, it jumps up, but then it slowly jumps up from there, which it's really basically re-equilibrating. But the, those two phases are important. That that initial jump from 20 to 25 is probably just, we're starting to recruit blood that was pooled in different limbs that wasn't being circulated through the dialyzer. And we're starting to re, as people's circulation returns to normal after dialysis, that BUN uh, starts to get mixed in with the rest of the pool. And it's that second phase, the longer one that you're describing, is the BUN leaving the intracellular compartment. Urea, which is a polar molecule, does not readily cross lipid membranes. And it does eventually, of course, and that's why we think of it as a an ineffective osmol. But in fact, it takes some time. And that's why the kidney is endowed with an array of transporters to help facilitate that. And I thought you might like a reference from Jeff Sands on this topic, which we'll put in the notes. And he says, although the permeability of urea across lipid bilayers is quite low, it's not zero, and given enough time, which we know happens, urea will diffuse across cell membranes and achieve equilibrium. And that's why most textbooks state that urea is freely permeable across cell membranes and not osmotically active. In contrast, the transit of tubule fluid through the kidney's inner medullary collecting duct is too fast to allow urea concentration to reach equilibrium solely by passive diffusion. Similarly, the transport through red blood cells through the vas erecta is too fast to allow urea concentration to reach equilibrium solely by passive diffusion. Thus, we need those transporters. So I really liked that section of his paper. I wanted to share that with you. Then I love figure 7-3. And this is the, let's use the two compartment model, intracellular and extracellular, and let's go through a few examples. And let's give pure sodium chloride, let's give pure water, and let's give isotonic water. And he runs through the examples, and he goes through and derives the math for each one of those. And it was a number of years ago, but I kind of, I was writing a chapter on kind of, you know, an introduction to sodium and water, and I kind of just did this on my own. I was like, okay, let me just kind of feel if I could just push the pencil and do the math on my own. And it was a moment of like clarity. I was like, oh, now I get it, right? And so I, lo- I loved reading it here. I thought I thought it was great. 
So the model begins. Uh, he says that we're going to have a sodium concentration of 140. Excuse me, uh, 4,760 milliosms. And then you add 420 to that 4760. So the new concentration is. You know what? This is not good. This is not good podcast. I can't. It's absolutely terrible. I would say like, so yeah, for me going through this and doing this kind of math and figuring out, Oh, what happens if you had this? What happens if you had this? And how did it change? Right. You're like, Oh wow. Look at the volumes change. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, and you just move from first principles. You're like, okay, well, sodium can't move into the intracellular compartment. Water has to remain in osmotic balance. And it's worthwhile walking through these step by step and doing the math yourself and seeing how this works and trying to kind of derive well, what would happen here and try to drive what happened and then compare it to what Burton Rose gets and kind of see. But the principal factor here is that if you add salt, you raise the osmolality in both the intracellular and the extracellular compartment. And none of that salt moves into the intracellular compartment. The reason you increase the osmolality in the intracellular compartment is you move water out of it. And that water comes out, it dilutes down all that salt, but it brings it down so the osmolality is equal on both sides at the consequence of an increase in the extracellular volume. Yeah. And then when you add water, water distributes across both compartments. You have no movement of solute at all. Both compartments get larger in the distribution that you normally have. So 60% goes in the intracellular, 40% goes to the extracellular yeah. in this example. And then the last one was adding isotonic saline. And here, again, the sodium chloride remains in the extracellular compartment. The extracellular compartment gets larger because it holds on to all that solute. And there's no change in um, osmolality across either of the compartments. Mm. And so one of the things that's great is in this situation, we have an, we give solute and we increase the extracellular compartment and we increase the sodium concentration. We give water, we decrease the sodium concentration and we also increase the extracellular compartment. And we give uh, isotonic fluids and we increase the size of the extracellular compartment and we don't change the sodium. And so this is a beautiful example where the sodium can go up or it can go down or it can stay the same with an expanded extracellular compartment. Mm -hmm. Boy, how many times have you taught this story where you say you can't determine the volume status from the serum sodium? Yeah, absolutely. Right? He just gives you three examples where the extracellular compartment is increased in all three of them. And in one, the sodium is high. And in one, the sodium is low. And in another one, the sodium is normal. And it's just a beautiful example of the independence of volume status and sodium concentration. And that sneaks up on you at the end. He pulls the rug out from you at the very end and says, hey, did you notice what we just did there? We increased the volume size of the extracellular compartment in all three ways, and the sodium went three different directions. The way he puts it is there is no necessary correlation between plasma sodium concentration and extracellular volume. Can we go back to table 7-1? Yeah. It says the osmotic and volume effects of addition of salt... Sodium chloride, so sodium, water, and isotonic saline. So this is a kind of reiteration of what he was doing yep. at the, in the table there. It says for when you give sodium chloride, so he's giving sodium without water here, just pure sodium. Of course, plasma osmolality goes up. Plasma sodium would go up. Extracellular volume would go up. Um, intracellular volume would go down, as you, as you said, because the... It stays extracellular, and you have to have osmotic e equilibrium, so water comes out of the intracellular. Well, why does space. the urine sodium go down? So that's got to be a mistake. That's uh, that makes that's got to be a mistake, right? So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, it has to be a mistake, and and unless I'm missing something very basic about sodium, in which I think I should quit this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's so elemental, Roger. I can't believe you don't understand it. <laughs> but. 
each of these, and you know, in fact, even when the, the example for water, he says here in sodium will go up because eh, you're pushing it a little bit, but it gets back to what. But that'd you know, be like we an A and P thing, right? Yeah, A and P thing. We talked about it with this idea, you know, and JC talked about it a little bit. There's a little bit of volume there with water, but urine sodium is not going to go down when you salt load somebody. Mm-mm. So that's a mistake. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Call. Nice okay. pickup. Yes. Nice right. pickup. It truly is one of the most satisfying things. <laughs> Every time we find a typo here, we're like, ah. <laughs> We are better than the editors. Wait, wait, wait. Can we go back for one sec to there? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The urine sodium should all be up arrows. Yes. Because all of the resulting, all of of the states are increased extracellular volume. So all of them should have increased urinary sodium excretion. Okay. That makes sense. Well, no, the, the, I guess it depends because the water one could be low because if the volume of water is high and dilutes out the, and dilutes out the urine sodium. Yeah, you could have a water diuresis and drop the urine sodium. I think it's a it's concentration a urine it a, sodium well, like is, is concentration it, it, times volume like milliequivalents lost urine sodium. Uh, but they should be better with their units in that table. I think that's a great. We are finding lots of nits to pick. Lots of nits to pick. Concentration here. of your insertion, yeah. So if you're going to leave your book, I just penned in my book for the first time, by the way. So I'm going to also pen in urine sodium quantity, like mass, not concentration. I think the, the two main messages that I get from these exercise of calculations is one, what you just said, Anna and Joel, that makes the point that plasma sodium concentration is, should not dictate the extracellular fluid volume of the patient. Uh, and the second aspect is the clinical applicability. And I think we could probably, all of us, come up with multiple examples of how this is relevant clinically. We already discussed earlier how we, we understand that uh, isotonic saline solution is a more effective volume expander than dextrose in water, and we already went through that. And I wanted to just a couple more situations. So the first one to me was very interesting is that the example where salt is ingested leads to expansion of extracellular fluid. And this is when we always think about sodium is volume, sodium is volume. And to me, this example is illustrates that to, to a great extent. The other interesting aspect is the uh, D5 water that we talked about earlier, and you mentioned, Joel. Yeah, we say... Sailing is great, D5 water is not that good as a volume expanded, but it's not zero. Some of it goes into the extracellular space, and he doesn't dissociate it in this chapter, but we talked that part of that is interstitial, probably three quarters, and only a quarter if intravascular. And I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about this issue of hyper natremia in the ICU and many times we're in a conversation with the intensivist the sodium is 153 you know we a nephrologist get the urge to correct it and we come and recommend D5 water because they already tried three days of consecutive free water flushes they're taking them nowhere and then we say please give D5 water sodium is training up and the patient is on a ventilator so the patient is on a ventilator so they are terrified of the idea of giving any fluid to the patient. and But I think it's we have to be cognizant that it is true that it's not the same as saline, but some of the water goes into the intervascular interstitial fluid. And, and this becomes uh, a situa- situation where I personally try to engage the combination of a diuretic with the water. But I just wanted to mention that that is a, a common scenario where we have this 
discussion with other specialists about this issue. Well, it comes up all the time. You can't give them that much fluid. They're going to heart failure. Oh, but, but the issue with the vent is more interesting, right? Because pulmonologist doesn't care about the heart failure so much. He's really concerned about interstitial water. And when you give this D5, a lot of it's going to be interstitial. And one of those interstitial tissues is the lung. We're pretty cavalier because it's not intravascular volume. Exactly. When we give D5, but we're not quite, it's not that this volume disappears. It does go somewhere. And yeah, two thirds of it goes into the intracellular compartment. We probably don't need to worry about that. But that last third goes, it goes into the extracellular compartment, three quarters in the interstitium. And some of that's lung tissue. Well, depending on what the, if the cause of this was water loss in the first place, all you're doing, you're not over hydrating. You're just bringing them back to where they were just, you know, in health originally. So now that may be bad, but, you know, they get the impression that all this water is going to water overload. And, and th- there is hyper, there is hypervolemic hypernatremia, which is a whole nother issue. But, uh, you know, we're talking about a pure water loss hypernatremia. All you're bringing them back is to a normal cell size anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think we have, we have a literature on like permissive hypercapnia, permissive hypoventilation. We don't have a literature on permissive hypernatremia that this is a good thing for people on ventilators. I think it's reasonable to say like we're rehydrating a raisin into like a partially rehydrated grape and that's probably better than leaving them super dry. Yeah. And and this is what I want to say that I think it's important, like exactly like you, what you guys are saying, engaging and acknowledging like, okay, maybe a tiny amount, but not enough to justify not treating this. We need to be a little humble yeah. and admit that we don't have data showing that treating hypernatremia results in better outcomes, Mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of associative data that ICU hypernatremia is associated with bad outcomes, but I am skeptical that correcting that hypernatremia is going to improve those patient outcomes. I really think it's more of a marker for doctors that are asleep at the switch. Or a marker for patients who are going to do very poorly, that you really can't manage them. It's Those are very tricky. I mean, the only reason to really worry about is that maybe also the patients will be quite uncomfortable. Yeah, it's interesting when uh, Steve Koka and uh, Girish Narkarni published that study that, that showed that correcting hypernatremia fast was not associated with worse outcomes. I had a casual conversation with Steve and I had, I, I said the same, Joel, I said, you know what? When I, was, I had less gray hair, I was all about chasing the sodium, getting down to 140, calculating my water deficit, ongoing losses. Now that I'm older, I'm thinking, you know, where is the data that shows that I'm doing anything better to the patient? And interesting, Melanie, he said that some patients that were awake reported being incredibly thirsty and uncomfortable. So we may not have mortality data ever, but to me, that's an important uh, piece of information. And I think that that discomfort can be delirium later. If folks are really ventilated and living at a one, sodium 160 for a week, they can be super uncomfortable. I mean, when I was like redeployed to COVID ICU world a year ago, we had a 40-year-old who had a sodium 160 who was totally fine from a ventilator standpoint, but was just not responding to us. And two days of just rehydrating him and not volume resuscitating, rehydrating him with D5, mm-hmm. like he perked up and could follow commands and could come off the ventilator. So, I mean, it's not big multi-center RCT level data, but I feel like each of us has probably seen folks really respond to fixing that one number and really helping them feel better to respond and get off the ventilator. This is a personal vendetta for me. I am that person who, if I'm thirsty, I get out of bed immediately. So like I can't. Yeah. You know, I was taking care of a patient with hypernatremia in the ICU at Beth Israel, and I and I said to the house staff, you know, there was this paper, fast versus slow, and you always wonder, does the 
does it apply to my patient? Is the situation similar to mine? And it turns out that the data set they used is actually from Beth Israel Hospital. I see you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we can use this. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, it always frustrates me when the ICU attending doesn't want to give D5 because you're already giving free water. Did you not think that that free water is also going to go a little bit interstitial? If you didn't want to fix the hypernatremia, then don't give free water. And that I won't suggest to give D5. So, I mean, you either want to fix it or you don't want to fix it. No, but there's a hollow viscous that goes from your mouth <laughs> to your urethra and that's where the water goes. I don't know what we're going to do when we actually get to the chapter on hypernatremia. Like, yeah, we already <laughs> talked about everything. We're on a chapter just on sodium balance and we can't help ourselves. We are just clinicians through and through. <laughs> the, the other thing I would say from a pedagogical standpoint here is I feel like we are so married to the 70 kilogram male that as a male who weighs sig significantly more than 70 kilograms, <laughs> like I haven't weighed 70 kilograms since I was in eighth grade, uh, <laughs> this is really hard to read. And also the math is really hard. Why can't we, I would suggest that for the, for this sixth edition, a hundred kilo male, you know, 66 of that is extra vascular. No, 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 no. no the sorry. The difference is because the numbers are going to be the same because we're fatter and all that fat is anhydrous. But just ide I bet we're a hundred kilos oh my and gosh. we still have only 42 liters of if water. If we idealize it and make it 60 kilos You're talking of water, about I'm all muscle. 40. Well, as clearly I, Josh. I know, I know you are cut. Right here. But if you had 40, 40 kilo, 40 liters of extra of intracellular volume, 20 liters of extracellular volume, five of which are intravascular, your math life is so much better. Like we should just teach this on 100 kilogram Americans as opposed to 70 kilogram men and Wait, move on with again. our lives. So in, in your in your in your 100 kilogram, in my 100 male, kilogram human being. So are we 60%? We can't be 60% water, right? Because there's a lot more fat. So well, what let's pretend. Well, let's then inflate the numbers that we're 60% water. But at the end of the day, you're, you sticking, want with, place, you're sticking with 60%. You want a place where you're 60 liters of water. 40 is intracellular, 20 is extracellular, and three quarter, one quarter, one quarter of 20 is five. Oh, the math is so damn. much nicer than these silly, like four point whatever numbers okay, that are Josh, just a pain in the multiple. Totally convince me. I am on your team here. Yeah. Okay. The average patient is now 222 pounds. Got it. Okay. I'm in. Okay, uh, next heading is relation of plasma sodium concentration to osmolality. And as I was reading this, I just was imagining Roger having a seizure when he talks about every sodium chloride molecule only dissociates to 1.75 osmoles and not to two osmoles. I, I zoned out a little in this part where then he's like, no, but in a, the end, it's about like it's, it's a totally fun read. To, to, it's a, to it's walk absolutely it. incredible because. They go through it, and yet in the end, it turns out that two times sodium works, but it works for a bunch of very lucky coincidental reasons, which is absolutely incredible. I don't think I'll ever teach this to anybody but a fellow because it's just better to say two times sodium <laughs> because it, it completely uh, dissociates. Because it's but it's an it's an incredible coincidence that all these other things work out, but the calcium, magnesium. Okay, so let's let's calcium. go through the steps. So the first one is that it doesn't fully dissociate. So your sodium chloride, if you want to figure out the number of osmoles, you would multiply your sodium by two, but that doesn't actually behave that way, and it's only one point seven five. And then the next step is that well, seven percent of our plasma is actually insoluble is either fat or proteins. And so we're going to divide that by 0.93. And that brings up to 1.88. 
And then that last 0.12 is filled in by the calcium, magnesium, and uh, potassium. And those salts fill the, fill the last gap. So it ends up being two times sodium equals your plasma osmolality. I think I garbled that. Does anybody want to try to take another shot at no, that? No, you, you, you did. It's fine. It's, uh, it's just remarkable that, that it works out. I just can't get over it. Yeah, this it. is one of those, the end of the day, it's better to be lucky than good kind of things. And so you're lucky that the math works out and you can just multiply by two and move on. I was cool with that. I feel like there's like a- Multiply by two and move on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so after the the journey to get to two times sodium equals the electrolyte content of your osmolality, we have two other components of plasma osmolality. We have glucose and BUN. Roger's favorite fact is why do we divide the glucose by 18? This is due to the molecular weight of glucose being 180, and we're converting from deciliters to liters. And so- we get one tenth of 180, so we get divided by 18. And the BUN is the blood urea nitrogen. We have two nitrogen atoms. Each nitrogen atom weighs 14. Add them together, we get 28, so we divide it by 2.8. And then Rose says, but hold on to your hats. We're really only worried about the effective osmolality. And we already talked about how urea, despite Melanie's claims to the contrary, we're going to ignore the urea. And so we have plasma divided by glucose. And then he says, eh, and glucose is pretty small. We're going to ignore glucose. And we're left with effective osmolality is really just two times the sodium, which I kind of love that amazing simplification at the very end. Why would you have this extra formula? Because... When you're going to calculate the osmolar gap, you do need the urea nitrogen. Like, what's the point of this one? I, I don't know. So I, I, I'm with you on the going down to two times sodium. But otherwise, I would say most of the time BUN is, gives you five points anyway. So that's just 10 altogether. Well, we're going to need the two times sodium for when we combine it with formula 7-5. That was the point that made my head explode. It's on the next uh-huh. page. But before we get there, I'm I'm happy to. Does anybody have any thoughts? When you know, because this is this is dealing with hyponatremia, right? And the ED docs they do two times the sodium to get the the plasma tonicity. They're looking at plasma tonicity, right? Mm-hmm. What do they then use that information to do? There's two points here. One that it just drives the point home of how sodium is so incredibly important for determining osmolality and why it's like what's driving, you know, things like cell size, all these things. But the second point is just to do a shortcut when you get a serum osmolality to confirm that you're not having like pseudo hyponatremia or something like that. I think you just kind of want to confirm that you are, that you're accounting for all your sodiums and that it's not anything else. I I don't, I can't think of anything else because I have thought about this. Like, okay, we teach this. I teach it, you know, but my biggest point is like, this just shows how important sodium is in determining osmolality, that this is really the primary ion. But then after that, other than to confirm a little shortcut, when you're working up someone with hyponatremia, I don't know that there's anything else. I don't know. Anybody got something? Anybody got any game here? I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss. Okay. We'll put that one on ice until we get to hyponatremia down the road. Since body fluids are in osmotic equilibrium, the effective plasma osmolality is equal to the effective osmolality of total body water. 
And that means, I mean, the effective plasma osmolality equals the effective solute in the extracellular compartment plus the, the effective solute in the intracellular solute divided by total body water. And we know that the intracellular solute is two times potassium. And the extracellular solute is two times the sodium. And so you get this effective plasma osmolality equals two times the exchangeable sodium plus two times the exchangeable potassium divided by total body water. And so that's one effective plasma osmolality formula. And then we have the other effective plasma osmolality formula that we did on the previous page, which is effective plasma osmolality equals two times the plasma sodium. And then you combine the two and it allows you to then solve for the plasma sodium. And your plasma sodium is approximately equal to the exchangeable sodium plus the exchangeable potassium divided by total body water, which is Edelman's formula derived from first principles. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I lit, my head kind of exploded. I'd never, I'd never seen that calculation done before. That is pure bud. It's really cool. I, I want to understand this better, and I feel like I'm missing something really key. The, the sodium E, the exchangeable sodium on the right side of the equation, how is that different from plasma sodium concentration? So it is, it is millimoles. This is not a concentration. Right. But it, if you take that sodium and divide it by total body water. It's the total amount of, it's the total sodiums, exchangeable sodiums in the body. Right. It's not a concentration. It's, it's not a concentration. It's the it's, sodiums. It, in the all the so, extra, all the exchangeable sodiums in the body plus all the exchangeable yeah. potassium in the body divided by all the water total body water and is your, is your plasma sodium? But how are those measurable yeah. things? How are they measurable? Is that what you yeah, they're not exchangeable for us. sodium and exchangeable potassium. It absolutely is worth pulling Edelman's 1958 study because it's like big science. He he has. Heavy sodium, he has radio-labeled sodium, he has radio-labeled potassium, he has heavy water. These patients get dosed with this stuff for three days in a, in a clinical research lab, and then they're able to then measure the total amount of sodium by drawing blood and figuring out what fraction of it is the heavy, heavy sodium, knowing how much they've given. It's a, it's a classic a tag and release, tag and retreat, recover. Uh, study. We did these in ecology classes where you'd paint rocks and you'd throw them out there and you'd collect the rocks. You figure out how many were painted and you can figure out how many rocks were there. It was, I love that shit. But he did, he did the same thing with heavy sodium. He did the same thing with radio labeled potassium and with heavy, heavy water to be able to figure out all these numbers. It was actually pretty cool. He specifically enrolled patients with disordered sodium and disordered water. So he's got heart failure patients, cirrhotic patients, patients with a pulmonary disease in, in this group, and they still all align up, right? Even though you have all these bizarre patients you'd think would be edge cases, uh-uh. The regulation of sodium and water, even though it seems dysregulated, still lined up along this formula. It's really impressive science. Oh my gosh. I'm looking at this paper now, but there's like these tables that just stretch for pages and pages of just like measuring the radioactive sodium coming out of these hundred, these like dozens of patients. It's really cool. So I'm going to go take a dig into this later. Yeah. It's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool study. And at the end of the study is this formula that largely looks like formula seven, six plasma sodium equals sodium, exchangeable sodium plus exchangeable potassium divided by total body water. And Rose gets here just doing first principle here. This is all the stuff that works here. And Edelman gets here by just doing the hardest science that you can possibly do, and they end up at the same place. Though, though Edelman does have some additional, the intercept doesn't go through zero. You can, and in fact, you can see his in Figure Seven Four. You can see Edelman's data, and you can see that it doesn't quite run through the line of identity. The slope's a little bit off, but it's pretty. It's still very cool. 
The problem is, is that we don't really understand this, what's exchangeable and not exchangeable sodium. There's a, you know, I don't know what percent, 20% or so, so of sodium is in our bones and it just sits there and it, it kind of doesn't get released. And yet it might get released or it might not be a static, you know, just a piece of cement. And Joel remembers this well, this, this, that crazy uh, Russian astronaut study where they had Tietze, they, they, the Tietze data. Hold on a second. He's a fan. I heard it rhymes with pizza. <laughs> yes, I think so. And I'm a fan. We have fans uh, also. That's exciting. You know how weird <laughs> is that, right? It's Jens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's who you're talking about. There was um, a simulated space mission in the early 90s in Moscow. And they had three astronauts in this simulated near space station. They had to use a barcode reader on everything that they ate. And he measured all their urine coming out of the space capsule. And after a and few- their stool. And their stool. And their stool. Everything. Everything. And after a few weeks, these people started retaining sodium like crazy. Like four grams of sodium was just retained and and without any weight gain. So they're retaining sodium without gaining weight, which is, by the rules that we're learning, impossible. Right, because we, we we one of our first principles is that the osmolality is the same throughout the body. So if you gain 140 millicovolts of sodium, you better gain a liter of water. And gained 2.2 pounds. And these guys were not gaining 140 milliequivalents. They were gaining thousands of milliequivalents. And, and, their not sodium remain, and their serum sodium remained normal. And their serum sodium remains. Well, he doesn't actually have serum sodium data, which is one of the weaknesses. He has body weights and he has urine study. He can know sodium balance. There are some limitations to working on the Mir space station, even if it's a simulated. But they're not thirsty, right? I mean, you know, presumably if their sodium was 160, they'd be drinking water like mad. And this was just the first study. He's really taken this really, really far. But the answer is, and he's done a ton of this work, is it is you get these sodium deposits in the skin. And it's in, uh, I want to say the proteoglycans, glucosamine glycans. Glycosaminoglycans. It is glycosaminoglycans. I think that's where it is. They're negatively charged and they can retain a lot of sodium. It's a pretty cool new science. And essentially what we have is we've talked about these, we've talked about this three compartment models, intracellular, extracellular, and the extracellular is divided into the interstitial and the plasma. And he's like, actually, there's a fourth and it's this skin and it's not like the bone. This sodium is absolutely metabolically active. It comes out of the skin during dialysis. It comes out of the skin when we diurese people. And we, he's got the molecular mechanisms for moving the sodium in and out. But I don't think we have any idea how to deal with it when it comes to handling hyponatremia. That's so cool. If anybody is listening to this and not decided on nephrology yet, and you heard that, and you're still not decided... Nobody but nephrologists is listening to this podcast. <laughs> my husband. My husband's listening. Except for Melody's husband. My mom is not going to become a nephrologist. It's just, there's just no hope. If anyone out there is listening to this podcast and is not a nephrologist, we want to hear your story, okay? So either send kidney underscore boy a DM on Twitter or email me at joel.toff at gmail.com. But, you know, this, this equation of the exchangeable sodium potassium, I have always struggled with this equation myself because of my inability to know what is exactly that exchangeable amount. What number should I put in this uh, numerator? So I have really struggled with that concept. But when you look at the clinical 
application of this concept, that's when it starts to become more obvious to me. And the example in the book is about a patient who has GI loss, or develops hypokalemia, and as a result of that, there's going to be mobilization of potassium out of the cell to deal with that hypokalemia, and, and talks about how because of uh, electron neutrality, probably a simplified, uh, simplified explanation, uh, sodium is going to move into the cell, affecting the plasma sodium concentration. And perhaps the best application of this uh, concept is in the treatment of a tough hyponatremic, hypokalemic alcoholic patient in the ED with a potassium of 2 and uh, they arrive to the ED with hyponatremia. And in those patients, administration of potassium chloride alone will have an impact in uh, restoring the plasma serum concentration. And in fact, patients with hypokalemia are patients with a higher risk of a central pontimolinolysis, one of those independent risk factors. And I'm sure it's because essentially it's a it's a proxy for they overcorrected, right? Because you've got mm-hmm. the nephrologist who's being very careful adjusting the sodium, and then you've got the critical care team that's just pouring in potassium, right? And mm-hmm. nobody re- and nobody's recognizing that they're they're both cations and they both count the same. I overstated the evidence here. I don't believe there is good data showing that potassium is an independent risk factor for osmotic demyelination syndrome. It is a risk factor, but whether it's independent of changes in sodium or not is a bit unclear, mainly because most case series of osmotic demyelinating syndrome are so small, it's difficult to do this type of analysis. Yeah, so I had a case like that in fellowship, and it was really, really cool. He came in hypotensive, so we had to give some normal saline. But other than the initial liter bolus that he got when he hit the door, we just gave potassium. I think he ended up getting like 304 or 400 milliclovins of potassium, and his sodium completely normalized. It was just really beautiful to see that at work. The, the thing about that, Joel, is that when you give, you know, you give potassium to a patient that's hyponatremic, it does raise their serum sodium. But it raises their serum sodium by the potassiums going in the cells, and then you get osmotic and water has to go in the cells. And if water goes in the cells, that should actually protect against the dehydration of a sodium rise that is the problem, is pontine cellular dehydration that gives you central pontine myelinosis. So it really isn't completely understood. There, There is one case that was published in AJKD years ago where simply giving potassium led to central pontine myelinosis, which goes really against the whole pathophysiology of what we believe is going on. Giving potassium will hydrate a cell. It will raise the sodium and hydrate the cell, whereas central pontine myelinosis really should, or osmotic dis- you know, demyelination really should be from cellular dehydration. So I don't, you know, I don't think we completely, completely understand it, but you have to be careful. And I've seen so many patients overcorrect as, as, uh, as you guys have pointed out, because they get, you know, they get, well, we only gave them uh, 300 cc's of, uh, of, uh, of 3%. And how did they go up by so much? And you would, oh, well, they also got uh, 300 milliequivalents of potassium. And that gets to the Edelman equation, which is really what JC was saying. You may have a little trouble understanding it, but if you put it in the, that context that you, you know, you got potassium and you got sodium. And if you got osms, the osmolarity has to go up. And if the osmolarity goes up, the sodium has to go up. And, and the one thing I would, I would say that, Roger, is that we have this mental model of how central pontine myelinolysis works, and it's really very visual, but we really don't know, right? All, all we can know is we have these observations, and one of the observations is people with hypokalemia are at high risk for this. And I was extrapolating that I thought that was an independent predictor for fast rise in sodium, but maybe that's not what it is, and it, you just have a, a neurons at risk. 
we have this vision of how it works and maybe that's how it works and maybe it doesn't because there's been there are weird stories about there are some people that don't have rapid rises in sodium they still get the central pontine myelolysis and there's patients that get it outside of uh, sodium changes at all it's a, it's kind of a weird disease there's cases where uh, it's been shown with hyper with hyperglycemia even very few, but you know, you think what drives out your brain faster than really, really bad hyperglycemia, and really, you know, we rarely see it there. But there are some cases of that. So, yeah, I don't think we completely understand it. Okay, and then he kind of finishes this section of saying that uh, changes in osmolality are due to changes in water. I think that we've kind of pounded on that pretty good. He highlights that hypernatremia is a defective, usually is a defective thirst mechanism, where hyponatremia is a defect in urinary water excretion. So either appropriately or inappropriately. And I thought that was a really nice, just like learning tidbit. So I hope you can. They're both focused on water. One is taking uh, an inability to take in water. The other one is an inability to excrete water. Yeah. Okay, nice. We're moving on to exchange of water between plasma and interstitial fluids. What we've been talking about so far is movement between the intracellular and the extracellular compartment. But another super important area that we need to look into is movement between the plasma compartment and the interstitial compartment. And the point of interest here is the capillaries and the post-capillary venules. And this is something I didn't quite understand until I had read this, is that a lot of the movement of fluid back into the uh, vascular space happens after the capillary bed in this, these post-capillary venules. The capillary is very different from the, the barrier between the intracellular and the extracellular compartment because it's permeable to sodium and glucose. So these substances do not behave as effective osmol. In fact, the only effective osmol are plasma proteins. And we even give it a special name. We call it the plasma oncotic pressure. And it's going to be balanced by the plasma hydraulic pressure. And then you're also going to have an interstitial osmotic pressure and an interstitial hydraulic pressure. And we're back to Starling's law. Wasn't it Starling's equation earlier in the book? Did we changed it. Did he, change, did he switch names on us? I'm going to have to look that up. The term starling forces refers to the hydrostatic pressure in the interstitium and capillary and the oncotic pressure in the interstitium and capillary. The way in which these four forces interact and result in net fluid flow across a semi-permeable membrane, usually a capillary wall, were described by the British physiologist Ernest Starling. That's the same Starling of the cardiology Frank Starling curve. He described this relationship in 1896, and it can be referred to as the Starling principle, law, or hypothesis, and it's usually written out as the Starling equation. We will use these terms interchangeably. Okay, but this time here, it's definitely Starling's law. And we have, he kind of, he goes through and he defines all these variables, you know, but, you know, the big picture is the forces that are pushing fluid from the capillary into the interstitium are your capillary hydraulic pressure, your interstitium osmotic pressure, and the forces pulling fluid back into the capillaries are your capillary osmotic pressure and your interstitial hydraulic pressure. I think it's, you know, very mathematically, it's a similar equation to that of the uh, glomerular filtration rate that we discussed in an earlier episode. It's exactly very the similar. It's exactly the same. I think the, the only parameter to me that is that we didn't cover or, or doesn't affect GFR, uh, I would say to this extent, is would be the lymphatic, the lymphatic flow that plays a role in, in formation or, or avoidance of edema. And he gives three different areas where he does a deep dive. He talks about the, the skeletal muscle, the alveoli, and the glomeruli. You know, just as uh, JC was saying, these are all governed by Starling's law. 
but there are differences in the physiology that change how much fluid moves out of the capillaries. Or the least amount of movement out of the capillaries was in the muscle. So here's what he says. So the muscle had lower capillary hydraulic pressure, and the capillary wall is impermeable to proteins, and you have a negative interstitial pressure due to lymph drainage, and that the net filtration pressure is only 0.3 millimeters of mercury, which was the least of all. So all those work to result in a very slow net filtration. That net filtration ends up being sucked away by the lymphatics and, and drained away so you don't get edema. Yeah, I think that the impermeability of the blood vessels in the muscle mean that oncotic pressure is a really big deal there. Right. Whereas in the alveoli, which is the next example, they're very permeable to proteins, mm -hmm. meaning that oncotic pressure doesn't have as much of an effect there. And I thought this is a really nice... They're less effective as an osmol. And there was a really nice description here of why this high alveolar protein permeability means that in settings of like hypoalbuminemia or nephrotic syndrome, you don't get pulmonary edema as commonly because there's not a big oncotic pressure difference between the pulmonary interstitium and the intravascular space because they equilibrate so rapidly. Yeah, this is, uh, I like very much this clinician of, of the alveoli because it has, again, clinical application. Uh, we had a recent discussion on Twitter about this where somebody described a patient with minimal change disease, like Joel was saying, you know, these patients are a massive fluid overload, anosarca, even a site is, but yet pulmonary edema is not common at all in a patient with classic nephrotic syndrome from minimal change disease or any nephrotic syndrome. And the other uh, scenario is in a cirrhotic. Uh, we see cirrhotics with profound peripheral edema, tense ascites. They may have hydro hydrothorax, but pulmonary edema is not a common feature of a cirrhotic, even though they have 25 liters on board of extra fluid on board, they don't develop unless they have already progressed to some sort of cirrhotic cardiomyopathy or, or some other cardiac reason for that. So I, I really like this. So when I read this chapter, it was really an eye-opener to understand this physiology. And so the, you know, that, that was just an example of how styling forces act here. Capillary hydraulic pressure is due to three sources arterial pressure, resistance at the precapillary sphincter. This is where autoregulation occurs. And this is critical because he says that without the precapillary sphincter, anybody who had even modest hypertension would develop significant edema and that the precapillary sphincter prevents that. And then there's post-capillary resistance in the venules and the veins. There's little area for control here, but it is those three areas of control or regular or points of uh, variability that regulate the capillary hydraulic pressure. On top of the hydraulic pressure, then there's the capillary oncotic pressure. And this is where the Gibbs-Donnan equilibrium comes in. And this was a level of chemistry beyond what I could understand. Uh, Rose walks through this step by step. Did anybody get a sense of what's going on with this Gibbs-Donnan? So the only reason I've even heard of this before this podcast is because my fellow sent me this letter to the editor and she was like, oh, by the way, I stumbled across this. What does this mean? And I was like, I have no idea what it means. By uh, M. Tenemoto, and it was in 2008, and it says the effect of serum albumin on serum sodium necessity to consider the donut effect. And I think what I gathered from this 
and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically that the sodium concentration is proportional to the change in serum albumin. So if you have a low serum albumin, you may also have a low serum sodium. And that's not physiologically wrong. It's just, it's just a, it's the Gibbs Don effect. Yeah. I, I think the, the chemistry idea here, and I tried to read about this a little before we taped. So this is not anything I knew before 4 p.m. today is that when you have proteins on one side of a membrane and cations and anions on both sides, the proteins can't cross the membrane. And since the proteins, the albumins are mostly negative charged, they're going to draw some sodium, some positive charges across the membrane with them. And so you can get two different compartments, one that has more sodiums and fewer chlorides and some proteins on one side and one with fewer sodiums and chlorides on the other side. As a result, you get a difference in the osmolality between the two compartments and then water should rush toward the protein containing compartment. It seems like another way of describing like oncotic pressure and also accounting for the idea that the the protein component that draws the oncotic pressure might also have some charge effects too. The colloid oncotic pressure ends up being greater than it would normally be predicted because of this Gibbs-Donnan effect, because of these proteins are... Because it has some chargedness to it that it's going to draw some extra sodium along with it. That's probably the best way to understand it. The end result is that the plasma oncotic pressure is greater than you would have otherwise predicted. And Rose does the math for you. The math looks very strange to me because he has a chloride concentration way higher than I would ever expect. He has a chloride concentration kicking at 137.7, which bothered me. I wasn't sure what was going on there. I think that was just a hypothetical example. But in the close of the paragraph, he did say that this is going to represent an oncotic pressure that would normally be predicted to be 17.4 millimeters of mercury and in actuality it's going to be closer to 25 or 26 millimeters of mercury and you know about a 25 percent 30 percent increase due to this gibbs donnan effect which you wave your hands and say oh because albumin is negatively charged it's going to stick with sodium is going to stick with that and the and the medical students should shake their head and say i understand (laughs) i just if you're talking to this to medical students about this i feel like you're just making a mistake you should do something that's your first mistake good point Good point. Amy, what were you going to say? So Gibbs-Donnan is more like, it's more talking about like oncotic pressure, basically. It's oncotic right? pressure and it has to do with the, when you talk about the pseudohyponatremia, you're talking about the volume of, from the insoluble particles, just the fact that this albumin is a large molecule. This has to do with the yeah. negative charge on the albumin, that mm-hmm. each albumin charge has like, is, is negative 15 anions. Mm-hmm. So if you have a lower albu- serum albumin level, then theoretically you should have a lower... A lower sodium because it's pulling less sodium into that compartment. That's the idea. I see. I see. I see. Right. And so Amy Amy had an interest her fellow sent her an interesting article was saying that, so we know, everybody knows that there's a the association between falls and fractures and hyponatremia. What I had always been told is, oh yeah, people demineralize their bones when they have chronic hyponatremia, and they have some dizziness because they have um, uh, kind of chronic hyponatremia causes changes to the uh, mental acuity, and people react slowly, and there's pretty good data showing that. But the article that Amy shared said, well, actually, it may be that these people have very low albumins and are more prone to episodes of hypotension, which could cause the falls and the fractures, which was a different way of thinking about it. And he points out that a lot of these articles that talk about hypotremia never measure or share 
the albumin level, which is not an irrelevant or unrelated factor and should be reported in these studies. Interesting fuel okay, for thought. I think I get it now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yes. <laughs> yes. Amy, expert on the Dunn Gibbs effect. <laughs> okay. Last, yes, last section is on safety factors. This is kind of going to kind of a little bit like what we talked about with the auto regulation. Uh, he says, uh, since the mean gradient only slightly favors filtration, it might be assumed that a small increase in capillary hydraulic pressure would lead to fluid movement into the interstitium and ultimately to clinically apparent edema. However, we don't see that. And he lays out the three factors. So one, you have lymphatic flow that constantly is draining anything that's getting filtered into the interstitium. Two, any fluid that filters into the interstitium immediately dilutes the interstitial oncotic pressure there, which will decrease the movement of fluid into the interstitium. It's kind of a negative feedback, which was very cool. And similarly, any fluid that moves into the interstitium will increase the interstitial hydraulic pressure opposing additional fluid moving into the interstitium. So all these things balance out and prevent us from developing edema with modest changes in these factors. And really, it takes pretty profound changes in the factors that govern capillary Starling's law to cause edema. And that was the entry into overfill and underfill this is a very important point here. And he talks about how, you know, in hypoalbuminemia, whether it's nephrotic or not, you lose oncotic pressure in the vessels, but the interstitial albumin falls to a similar level. So what we've classically taught people that, you know, the edema of, say, nephrotic syndrome is because your albumin's low and you have no oncotic pressure, but the uh, the albumin and the interstitial fluid drops equally and the gradient really doesn't change. And so this kind of gets to the pathophysiology of edema in nephrotic syndrome. That is, it is not an albumin issue. It's a pro- primary uh, renal salt retention issue. You know, there are there are people that are born without albumin. It's very rare. Congenital analbuminemia. A few groups in, in Canada that have this. And uh, they're born, some have, are totally asymptomatic and some have a little bit of edema, but it, they're not born with anasarca. And uh, it just goes to show you that albumin is important, but, you know, as it drops, it also drops in the interstitial space. And it's not the reason behind edema in, in most hypoalbuminemic states. Sorry, j- just want to add to that Roger uh, story. When I was finishing medical school, I had already committed to, to go into nephrology at that time. And I was reading one of those nephrology forums and on you know, Kid International. And there they talk about this uh, analbuminemic, not humans, but rats. You probably know, but they, I think they were developed in Japan, the Nagasi rats. They have no albumin. And they show these very elegant studies using uh, radioactive markers to look at extracellular fluid volume, demonstrating that the rats had absolutely no edema, despite having no albumin. And as you said, we have learned more probably the last couple of decades from the work of Tom Clayman and others that the sodium retention by the epitheliocytium channel uh, and other mechanisms uh, are largely responsible for edema and nephrotic syndrome. So then in these patients, and what is it, this is fascinating, I've never heard of this, but what is it like, what hemodynamic changes do you see if like any, if you don't have oncotic pressure or or the oncotic pressure is equal in the intravascular than interstitial space and you have retention of sodium, like does that equal out as in the blood pressure is okay or how, what what happens to that? Well, it's a great question, uh, Lydia. I, I, I think it's in a cirrhotic, it's a little different because they have a peripheral arterial vasodilation. They clearly have that effect. So that is going to affect effective arterial volume. And that explains why these patients are relatively hypotensive. 
uh, and regardless of albumin, they'll have limited perfusion to organs, obviously the kidneys among the top. But in, in the uh, nephrotic patient, um, I don't know. They don't, uh, you know, they are massively, but they're not necessarily hypotensive. Uh, you know, they could be bone depleted if you diarrhea them, but it's not like they go into shock spontaneously, right? I don't, in fact, many nephrotic patients will come hypertensive. So yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I don't fully there's understand. A of, there's a lot of literature where they've studied plasma volume on people with nephrotic syndrome and, you know, severely hypoalbuminemic nephrotic syndrome. And they have normal to high intravascular volume when they, uh, it's not low. And so the classic medical school teaching is really not not the case. Rose gets into this a little later, but actually it's probably towards the very, very end there. But, you know, the one situation where severe hypoalbuminemia can lead to hypovolemia is when it's very, very abrupt. And that's classic minimal change disease. And I think that's why we see patients with minimal change disease often have such a high incidence of ATN because it's just, you know, talk to some of these moms, you know, they wake up and their baby, in two days, their baby's a complete swollen disaster. I mean, it's that fast. That is intervascular depletion because I think they're losing albumin faster than they can equilibrate with their interstitial space. But most of our nephrotics have normal to high intervascular volume. And it's really about, you know, an activated ENAC from proteinuria that... It leads to the salt retention. You know, I read that. I remember that rat story, uh, the analbumic rats, and then I found this article on the humans. So I figured they also had no edema. Well, it's not really true. They're not as pure as rats. They have, you know, there's fifth, there's fifty, a whole fifty cases as of you know ten years ago when I found the one <laughs> paper. They don't have anasarca, and uh, some of them have edema, and some of them don't have edema. It is kind of interesting that, that you can get away with that. Can we stick on these crazy analbuminemic people because this is just. It's so crazy to me. Um, but like Roger had said, there are about 50 case reports of these people since then. And it seems like the main adaptation they have is the overproduction of other plasma proteins to make up for some of that oncotic pressure loss. So they make alpha and beta globulins in excess. They make other immunoglobulins in excess to try to make up for some of that lost oncotic pressure from albumin. But even still, they probably still have a little lower oncotic pressure than normal and still have some edema peripherally in general. But are, are, if they make it to adulthood, they're generally pretty well compensated by that point. What do you think is the stimulus for the overproduction of immunoglobulins? You're like, to make up for it, but like evolutionary, like what, by what mechanism? Your plasma cells are just like, oh, we better do our part? Like what? Well, it's kind of like the the lipid thing with, uh, you know, why, do, why does cholesterol go up? It may be the same kind of yeah, feedback maybe. somehow. Do they have high lipids? Uh, they didn't measure them. I read the paper today. They didn't measure them. <laughs> they can have high esterified cholesterol, free fatty acids, and apolipoprotein B. And you have to think of, you know, there's extreme calcium. Like, how do you interpret this? And how, like, medications that are albumin bound, like, how do you, you know, make sure that the doses are appropriate and all that? But so, but you said, Josh, like you said, most of the ones that make it to adulthood, do some of them, like, is the life expectancy lower? There are some genetic conditions, some genetic versions of this that are much worse to have and some that are better to have. And again, we're talking about 50 human beings that have ever been reported with this thing, like less than one in a million prevalence. So the idea that we're going to see a ton of these people and have to worry about how to dose their, their diltiazem is, is lower. It does feel like evolution would select against people that can't make albumin. But man, this is crazy interesting. I did not know this was a thing. The last thing then, the, the patients that Roger mentioned, the children with extremely low serum albumins, those are the ones in whom you can demonstrate activation of renin angiotensin aldosterone. And everybody else, you can't 
demonstrate that. And that pokes, I, I think, a pretty big hole in the underfill theory right there because it's like hormones not activated. Should, should we talk about overfill, underfill here? Is that a thing we're going to talk about? Okay. I think the general consensus among nephrologists is that medical school got it wrong, that we don't develop edema and nephrotic syndrome because of the low albumin. We develop edema and nephrotic syndrome because the kidney's broken and is retaining sodium inappropriately, and that retention of sodium leads to edema. And we've actually have the molecular mechanism that we have abnormal activation of the ENAC channel causing that sodium retention. The paper that um, they reference is this 1983 uh, Journal of Clinical Investigation study that Barry Brenner was the last, uh, last author on. And I'm like, this guy wrote everything. But it was really cool how they, they induced a nephrotic syndrome in just one kidney. And then it was very neat. The paper that Anna referenced was uh, from Brenner's group, including Helmut Renke. And what they did was they took rats and induced a lesion in one kidney that is very similar to minimal change. And indeed, Helmut Renke looked at the biopsies and this pyromycin induces changes in the kidney that are analogous to minimal change disease. And so the light microscopy of these rat glomeruli are normal. And then the electromicroscopy shows changes with simplification of foot processes that looks quite like minimal change disease. And this induces quite heavy proteinuria in the kidneys affected by pyromycine. So what they did was they did this to only one kidney and demonstrated heavy albuminuria in that kidney. And then they studied the urinary sodium in that kidney compared to the normal kidney and showed uh, that the urinary sodium was very low, that there was sodium retention in the kidney that had been treated with pyromycin. But that's not all. Then they actually did micropuncture studies to demonstrate that the location of the sodium retention was in the distal nephron. And so that's the part that's very exciting. Those rats do not develop the whole nephrotic syndrome, however. They don't have low serum albumins. The point of this was that the lesion of minimal change disease was there and the sodium retention was there related to the albuminuria. It's a really smart experiment. It's kind of like gallbladder hypertension. And then the other important thing to keep in mind is what Roger was saying is that it's never all or nothing that the underfill theory does work in certain circumstances when you have very acute onset of albuminuria like the minimal change disease in kids. And, that, and that's so important So because there will be data that shows the other way. That says, oh, look at it. It really does look like the underfill theory. Well, in certain circumstances, for sure, that is operational, but not universally. I have, a, I have an overfill theory question as well, if that's okay. Yes. Yeah. plasmin cleavage of the ENAC inhibitory domain? Is that a thing that's kind of the proposed mechanism for overfill? Okay, because that's something that was also new to me. The idea is that you have this plasminogen that's filtered molecule going down the tubule. It's activated into plasmin on the surface of the cortical collecting duct. And that plasmin molecule can cleave off an inhibitory domain off of ENAC that allows ENAC to be even more active, reabsorb more sodium, and lead to more volume retention, hypertension, and peripheral edema in this overfill mechanism. It's the albuminuria itself that triggers the sodium retention, and specifically this one enzyme, this plasminogen that gets activated to plasmin. 
Very cool stuff. I've been always fascinated by this this mechanism. I, I mentioned earlier, Tom Clayman is one of the guys who've been doing this. And I understand there are some trials ongoing, trying to uh, testing amyloride as a diuretic uh, for nephrotic syndrome. But, you know, it's a fascinating mechanism, yet our loop diuretics are pretty good, uh, are still our first line of therapy. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Are we really going to move into a situation that blocking the sodium channel is going to be the ultimate therapeutic maneuver? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, let me find the studies that show amyloride is the right drug for this. And they're not there, right? There's a couple of case reports and there's a couple of stories of personal, but nobody's done like the obvious study. Because their legs are so big and you want leaders off. Well, I think it just must be more complicated than that. But also, also, well, maybe nobody thought of it. I think it's so useful to think about the partner itself leading to sodium retention. And that helps with all your patients with partneric renal disease who have difficult to control volume and hypertension, especially the diabetics and think that, you know, that this is really why you must have a diuretic in their regimen to handle the sodium retention. Okay, we are two hours into recording. You sure you don't want to do another chapter? Here. Um, no. I was going to talk about a milleride. I feel I like I've been set up for a milleride. I'm going to kill you. Uh. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you on ice there. I'm not even, That's okay. I'm not even asking permission. Really.